right, and we are back. It is great to be with you here today at the Biblos Network. We are glad that you have decided to join us this warm May afternoon. We are coming to you from Durham, North Carolina, First Pentecostal Church. God is doing great things, and I know he's doing great things where you are because God is doing great things everywhere. So we're glad you've decided to join us today. I know you could be doing a lot of things with your time. And I will tell you, we are overwhelmed by the support that people have given to us here at Biblos. We are getting feedback from apostolics from around the world, people that are independent apostolics, WPF, UPCI, ALJC, PAFW, all of these different groups, the body of Christ in all of its manifestations, it is humbling, it is exciting, God is doing a great thing, and we are rejoicing in the Word of God. That's what we're doing. And we want you to rejoice with us. We want people to fall in love with their Word, fall in love with their Bibles, read it, understand what the, the prophets and the apostles were trying to say. And he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. Um... Uh, we have just come back from a whirlwind trip into the Middle East. I took my youngest son, Benjamin, with me. And Benz and I went to London, uh, Paris, uh, into Berlin. Uh, Berlin, not Berlin, into Beirut. <laughs> I'm getting my Berlins and my Beiruts mixed up. We did go through Germany, through Frankfurt, but um, into Beirut, Lebanon, to the Azar family and in the church the great church that is there the great work that they're doing there we did a a segment there from the city of biblos we will share that with you you'll be able to see that <clears throat> and we are preparing to launch biblos arabic and we have every intention of preaching the gospel in lebanon in egypt in iran and iraq in any other place, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Kuwait, Yemen, Syria, wherever we can penetrate with the gospel, there are so many people that are hungry for the things of God. And, and what a time, what a time we had. Uh, great preachers that did such a fabulous job, Brother Jonathan Vasquez and Brother Michael Enzi, Brother Julio May, and other ministering brethren that were there. And... I was able to minister in the Sunday service and watching the Holy Ghost fall in each of those services and then uh, to fall in the service that I was ministering in. It was just a powerful thing. People got the Holy Ghost. People got um, miraculously touched by God. And there in the Middle East, right in the land of Abraham, you have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. While I was gone, I pre-recorded a session that we broke into two segments on Calvinism. And for every Calvinist that denies that a person can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you weren't there. And you didn't see what we saw when, when people that have been oppressed by Islam for many, many years, watching them lift their hands, lift their heads, and God filling them with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, watching them come up out of the water, baptized in Jesus' name. One of them, I, I can't say it on the air because it would endanger his life, but, but the sect of Islam he is from um, is very violent. 
watching him receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It was amazing. God did such great things, and God is doing great things. So what a time to be serving the Lord. What a time. We got to go to the Great Pyramid and uh, there in Cairo in Egypt and to the Sphinx, and we rode the camels. If you've never ridden a camel, you just don't know what you're missing. <laughs> they are big animals. They are powerful animals. They are loud animals. And I had a bunch of my friends telling me that I was going back to the land of my forefathers, <laughs> back to the Middle East. So I guess I was. I had my little my little headdress on, my, my Arabic garb and attire. I wanted to say do-rag, but that's not what it was. But it was <laughs> whatever they call that thing, and I'm wearing it, and my son's wearing it, and it was it was a lot of fun. And when we came back, my my son looked at me as, as we landed in JFK in New York City and said, Dad, there's no place like the United States of America. And he's right. We were thankful to get back home. We, we did. We were in some pretty uh, tight situations there. I was thankful that there were armed guards that were there because we went during the, the time of Ramadan and there were a lot of heightened sensitivities, particularly at holy sites. And sometimes there can be extremists that, that would really like to make a statement by attacking Americans or Christians or something to that effect. And we did have armed escorts, they had fully automatic weapons, and, and they, were, they were there to help us, and they did. And we, we got through everything just fine, and, and we came back home. So we are back. We are back in the saddle here in Durham. It was a great time. God is doing great things with the Azar family. We will be supporting them in missions. And we're looking to partner with people to help us support them in missions. Speaking of partnering with us, take a moment, look in the merchandise section. There should be a link right below this video where you can go, thebiblosnetwork.org, thebiblosnetwork.org, where you can purchase coffee cups. And we are beginning to work on hats and shirts and other Biblos merchandise that you can support the Biblos Network. Um, the coffee cups are flying off the shelf. We have sold a lot of coffee cups. People are bibliophiles. And those of you that have done so, thank you for your support. We, we can't keep them in stock. So people are ordering them. They are getting them. I'll have to show you guys some pictures of some, some, some people that have ordered them. If you have purchased a Biblos mug, take a picture of it up in front of you and, and we will we will post them on the social media site and we will give credit to where credit is due. We are so thankful for, for local uh, loyal Biblos partners and family. Let me take a minute here today. I want to respond to a, a statement that a man made on one of our one of our Calvinism segments that we did. This is from Diego. Diego said, the fact that you said Jesus is not eternal refutes everything else you said. You can start with John 1.1. 1, 1. Then he said, John 17.5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then he said, regarding works needed for salvation, explain 
the works the thief on the cross did to receive salvation. So this is from Diego. Diego, thank you for your statements. Thank you for taking the time to mention them. I know you might feel that we are wrong in our position that we're taking, but we are not wrong, Diego, and I will take the time to answer these things here today. They are good questions. People ask them all the time, and, and I'm glad you took the time to, to, answer, to ask them. Um, concerning Jesus being eternal, Jesus is eternal. He is God. He is God manifest in the flesh. The Father manifested himself in flesh, and that the terminology used there is the Son of God. The Son of God. And in that he is God, he is eternal. So John 1, 1, absolutely. And, and the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world began is a reference. It's using human language to describe the relationship of the man Christ Jesus with that invisible spirit, which we know as the Father. Now, this is not two divine persons talking about how good it was back in the good old days. First of all, God does not live in time. So to God, it is all one moment. It is all one instant. He is not in the past, present, or future. He lives in the ever-present moment. He is eternal. And in that, Jesus is eternal because God is eternal. However, <clears throat> this we strongly deny the phrase, God the Son. We do not believe in an eternal sonship. If, and, and, and that was a, a very strong point that Michael Servetus, that we talked about in the Calvinism segment that we did, Michael Servetus denied and would not use the term God the Son. He used the term the Son of God. God the Son is not in the Bible. That phrase is not in the Bible. The Son of God is. A, the Son of God is a reference to the incarnation of God. So that God became flesh. If you can imagine a cloud up in heaven, for lack of a better analogy, the spirit is often made analogous to a cloud. That cloud, it was in the man Christ Jesus. The same cloud, the same spirit was in the man Christ Jesus. And that is the Father in the Son. So, so God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Not a separate God, not a separate person, not a, another second divine person, but, but one God who is in the man Christ Jesus. In his divinity, he is eternal. He is before the world began. And the man Christ Jesus, as the word, as the logos, was with him in the same way that a man's word or his mind is with him. And in the mind of God, it is all as if it happened at one time. So Jesus can be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, though he is not actually slain physically from the foundation of the world. In that he is, the, he is not an eternal son, that we deny that the sonship is eternal. The Bible strongly teaches that the sonship had a place of beginning, and it will have a place of ending. In the Psalms, it says that, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So the sonship has a begottenness. It's not an eternal begottenness. That is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It, 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 it does not make sense. It doesn't, it's not logically sound. 
And if you say there's a God the Son, well then there has to be a God mother out there, which actually is what many contend for, that this is the part of the foundation of Mariolatry, to the worship of Mary, that somehow there's this cosmic goddess and, and that eternal son came from that. Well, oh, now you're getting into the mysticism of Catholicism and the, and the Greco-Roman constructs that polluted and corrupted Christianity. The Son of God is a reference to the, the incarnation of the man Christ Jesus. And, and the fact that he could have glory with him from the very beginning means that that father was eternal and in the mind of God there was the word and the logos that was with God that's John 1 1 he was with same was in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God so just like a man's word is not separate from himself that is how it was with God he sent forth his word it was made flesh and that Logos became flesh, that is Jesus Christ. So in, in, a, in the way that a man's word is with him, that is how that Logos was with God, the Father. The thief on the cross, now this is a big one. This, this is a big thing that people always ask. Now I've dealt with it in other sessions. I'm going to take my time with it today. And, and this is a session that I want you to share with your friends your Methodist friends, your Baptist friends, your Catholic friends that want to know about this. Because in denominal Christianity, there is this idea that you cannot have any work in your salvation. And where people get that from is Romans chapter 4, where, where Paul makes the statement, we are not justified by works. And Paul takes a lot of time to really articulate that. And it's true. We are not justified by works. There's no amount of work that you can do or I can do to justify us. You can't say enough Hail Marys. You can't do enough rituals. You can't count enough beads. You can't pray long enough to get to the point to where you are finally self-justified. And as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that self-righteousness is as filthy rags to God. So man cannot justify himself. We are not claiming that we are justified by our works. The Bible says it is not by works of righteousness which we have done. But it is the mercy and the grace of God that saves us. Now, I'm prefacing what I'm going to say with that because works are part of salvation. And I'm going to take a moment and describe what I'm saying because it sounds like I'm talking double talk, <clears throat> but I'm not. The Bible takes great pains to describe the work of Romans chapter 4, and it's talking about works of the law. Everybody say that with me. Works of the law. So any human effort that would produce righteousness is doomed to fail. We cannot be redeemed by our own works, and that includes the works of the law. So circumcision is a work of the law. Observing the Sabbath day is a work of the law. All of the physical disciplines of the Old Testament are not sufficient to redeem us. If it had been, we would have been redeemed under the Old Testament. But we are not, and no man ever has been. The only man to ever fulfill the law is the man Christ Jesus. He was sinless. He was the spotless lamb 
he fulfilled the law to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. And in doing so, he is a worthy substitute to redeem us. He's a worthy lamb. He is a worthy high priest. He fulfills all things for us. So no man is able to be redeemed without Jesus Christ. He was the only man to truly fulfill every part of the law. This is why he was 30 years old when he began his ministry, because a high priest had to be at least 30 years of age. So all of these things <clears throat> are, are, are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And Romans 4, the works that are there, are the works of the law and human effort that brings redemption. Now, let me read a verse of Scripture, and I want you to see this. This is in your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Now look at this phrase. And the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Work of faith with power. What a statement. Now, if you are coming from a Catholic background, it is all works. Everything is done by works. You can, you can, you can pray prayers. You can, you can take communion, and that transubstantiation is able to redeem you, that wafer and that wine. You are able to be justified if you will follow the sacraments and the physical expressions of the Catholic faith. When the Protestants protested and rejected that and rebelled, they swung the pendulum all the way to the other side that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That's Martin Luther's famous phrase. He denies all works. No works of any kind can save us. And it was a reaction to Catholicism. It actually got to the point where they said you could buy your salvation. You could give indulgences and buy the forgiveness of sins. When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that little ditty, it was, was the straw that broke the camel's back for Martin Luther. And he said, that's it. All of the icon worship, all of the idol worship, all of the graven images, all of the excesses, all of the abuses, that's it. It's over. He protests. We have the Protestant movement. So you have all works, you have no works, both sides of the spectrum. But the truth is, in James chapter 2, that it is works and faith. It's both. Not saving works that we do, but our action couples with God's saving work. Only God can do a work that saves us. The grace of God that saves a man has to initially come from God. But it is given to every man the measure of faith. Man has a measure of faith. Man can respond. And it is the middle ground of that where the real church finds its purchase. That's where the book of Acts, it's another way of saying works, comes into play. And so James says that Abraham was justified by works. And... Rahab the harlot was justified by works. And the question 
that is asked is, can faith save him? <clears throat> and the Bible says no. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So here's the little synopsis. Um, when we repent, we are producing works. We are obeying. We are putting our action with our faith. This is a work of faith. Just like Second Thessalonians says, And when that happens, it is not our voice that saves us. It is not the choice to go to an altar and repent. It's not our neurons firing that redeem us. Who does the work? God does the work. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and our unrighteousness. So who does the work? God does. We put our action to meet God. God meets us at that place, and faith without works is dead. And James says in James, the book of James chapter 2, that that, that faith wrought with his works. He said, show me your faith without your works, I will show you my faith by my works. I want you to absorb that statement. I will show you my faith by my works works. That is how faith is manifested, by my works. When you get baptized, that's a, this is a charge that people give to us as apostolics all the time. Oh, we're not saved by works. You don't need to be baptized. Nothing could be more false than that. Noah and the ark teaches that you must go through the water to be saved. To come out of Egypt, you must go through the water to be saved. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, gives us the template to fulfill all righteousness. And he goes into the water as a template to be saved. Though we know Jesus didn't have to do that for sin, and John the Baptist rightly recognized that, but Jesus says, suffer it to be so that I may fulfill all righteousness. And if Jesus needs to do that as our template, you and I surely need to. This is what it means to be born of the water and born of the Spirit. It's not works of righteousness that we do. It's that when we obey and we go into the water and we are born of that water, it is the name of Jesus that washes our sins away. It's not the water. If it was the water, every time you took a bath, you'd wash your sins away. Every time you got in the swimming pool, you'd wash your sins away. But it's not. It's not the water. It's not our activity of going into the water. It is our obedience to the word of God and the pronouncement of the name of Jesus in baptism that saves us. And who does the work of remission? God does. God does the salvific work, the redemptive work. Not us, but it is our faith working with God's providence and his grace. So it starts with God. We respond. There must be a response from us. So the scripture says we loved him because he first loved us. Jesus said you have not you have not called me, but I have chosen you. You have not chosen me, I have chosen you. So this begins with God. His prevenient saving grace begins to work in our life. And the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It starts with God. We respond to it with our Bible obedience, our action, and God does the saving work. It is not an all-or-nothing proposition. It's not all works. It's not all faith. It is a combination of the two according to James chapter 2.
And when you receive the Holy Ghost, you, you receive it, His Spirit fills your heart, you speak with other tongues, His Spirit bears witness with your spirit, my spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, He gives us the spirit of adoption. Who does the infilling? Who, who quickens us together? God does. The Lord does. So, <clears throat> this work of faith is right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. Martin Luther felt so strongly about this that he wanted to cut the book of James out of the Bible. He wanted to just take his little scissors and just snip it out of the Bible. <laughs> so Romans 4 that says we're not justified by works is talking about the works of the law. James chapter 2 shows how faith and works work together. I'm saying all of that to lay the foundation concerning the thief on the cross. That's where I'm headed with this. Um, before I get there, let me just point out that from Protestantism arises the, the cancer of Calvinism. The idea that people are saved before they're born, they are damned before they're born, they have no choice in the matter of any, in any way, shape, or form. Everything is predestinated individually. We strongly reject this. We know that every man and woman has a chance. They can believe God. And it's one of the furthest expressions of, of the fact that we don't need any action on our part. Like God is just letting this drama go on so that he can display his righteousness and just let his righteousness play out for the cosmos. And that's not a scriptural principle. So we strongly reject that. There is a work that God does in the hearts of men and women. They can turn to God. It is a legitimate choice. They can choose what's right by the grace of God. Uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And if you see <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11, there's a host of scriptures that deal with this, but when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and it describes faith, that's the roll call of faith. It talks about Abel, it talks about Abraham, Moses, um, it talks about Isaac, it talks about Jacob, it talks about the patriarchs. And in there, when it, when it speaks of their believing and having faith by faith, over and over, it couples it with works. Always. It always goes together. So, by, a, by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Well, how did he do that by faith if faith and works are two completely different things? By faith, Abel offered. Let that sink in. Let that just kind of marinate. The offering of the more excellent sacrifice was by faith. They are inextricably intertwined. You can't separate the two. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. This is not just belief, but this is what Jesus said, that he that believeth on me as the scripture hath said. Well, the Bible tells us what the scripture has said. James tells us that Abraham offered unto God and offered Isaac unto the Lord and it says he was justified by works. I mean, you've got to let that phrase get down into your bones. 
he was justified by works. Now, Calvinists and, and Protestant people, they don't like that phrase. That flies in the face of their theology, but not the apostolic church. We know that we are justified by faith and by works together. And then it says Rahab was justified by works. And so Abel offers unto God a more excellent sacrifice. So you cannot disconnect the faith and the working of the person together. It says Noah, by faith Noah built. Well, if it's, if it's all without works, why is, he, why is the Bible describing this work of faith? So by faith Noah built, moved with fear, built an ark to the saving of his house. By faith Abraham went out. By faith Moses forsook Egypt. It's, there's these action verbs that follow the faith. By faith. By faith Jacob leaned upon his staff, worshiping the Lord. By faith, by faith, by faith. And, and it shows this action that they perform. So the faith that the Bible describes is not this, this vague mental acceptance, this, 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 these mental gymnastics that happen that have nothing to do with us. It has, you know, it's, they, the, the charge is that if you do anything, that, that that's not faith. But this describes it as a work of faith. And how can a person believe without some kind of work happening? And I've said this before, and it bears repeating. When you believe on God, something does take place inside. There's a synapse that fires. There's a, a, a neuron that fires. However minuscule and microscopic work is, it is human effort. Whether it's the moving of your hands, whether it's the building of an ark, or whether it's a neuron firing, you got to do something. <laughs> and so to say that there's no work that we can do, no, 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 that's not true. We do have works. We are justified by works, according to James chapter 2. Read it. It's right there in your Bible. And this is why we must repent, we must be baptized, we must be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. We obey, and God does the heavy lifting of the redemptive work. God does the forgiving, God does the washing away of the sins, and God does the redemptive infilling of the Holy Ghost. But we have to step forward and meet him halfway. All right, Diego, I said all of that to talk to you about the thief on the cross. And this is for all my denominal friends. Um, it's important that you get this concept. The thief on the cross was saved in the Old Testament. That's why he didn't have to be baptized. That's why he didn't have to receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And to ask that question is to show that you are not aware of this. The Bible is explicit in how it describes it, and where we find it is in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. So Diego, if you're listening to this, I want you to follow me to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Hebrews 9 and 15. And this is for all my Calvinist friends who love me, and, and I love them and pray for them, and all of my denominal friends, all of my atheist friends, all of my apostolic friends, 
Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. And this is what the Bible says. And for this cause he, that's Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So say that with me, death of the testator. I want you to get that concept. Verse 17, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. A testament is a force. That's the New Testament, by the way. The New Testament was in force after Jesus died, not before. Otherwise, it, is, it has no strength at all. Look at that phrase. No strength at all while the testator liveth. So in the New Testament, Jesus told Nicodemus that we would be born of the water, we would be born of the Spirit, that we would be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and we would be able to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and that had no strength at all while the testator was still alive in, in the book of John chapter 7 Jesus makes this statement um, he that believeth on me as the scripture has said out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water and, and, and I'm gonna say this in this context there's a lot of people that think people got the Holy Ghost when Jesus breathed on the disciples the Bible says he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And they said, Look, right there, they received the Holy Ghost. No, no. Jesus was illustrating how the pneuma worked. The breath of God. That, that what, what breathed over the world in Genesis 1 and what breathed over Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in that vision and what breathed on the day of Pentecost was the breath of God. And Jesus was exhaling and showing them this is the exhalation, the divine pneuma. It is the breath of God by which man became a living soul and by which man will be regenerated in the New Testament. In John 7, he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And it says that out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him, there's your believing, as the scripture has said, he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when Jesus breathed on them, that wasn't them receiving the Holy Ghost. John 7 clearly tells us that the Holy Ghost was not given until Jesus was glorified. But what he was doing was showing that the Holy Ghost would be poured out. And when he died, that was when the New Testament took force. The thief on the cross was saved before Jesus died. By a sovereign act of God, Jesus, as God, said today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so the thief on the cross is saved just like anybody under the Old Testament was saved. If you went to the high priest, if you went to uh, underneath, underneath that old covenant and you followed that covenantal dynamic, you were in covenant with God. 
and there was a framework, an Old Testament framework by which saints could be justified in that Old Testament paradigm. <clears throat> Um, the thief on the cross had access to the most complete human that ever lived. And rather than have to go to the actual high priest, Jesus was the high priest. Rather than have to go get an actual physical lamb, Jesus was the lamb. He was everything. He, here, here was the penultimate human to ever walk, God in flesh. And he redeems the thief on the cross in a sovereign act before the New Testament enters the picture. A testament is a force, a force after men are dead. It is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So he doesn't need to be baptized. He doesn't need to receive the Holy Ghost in that New Testament administration because the testator wasn't dead yet, Diego. That is the answer to what you're asking. After that took place, Jesus rises from the dead. He tells them in Acts chapter 1, Go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, I have given you. And they go. They go to Jerusalem. They pray for seven days. God pours out his Holy Ghost. That's the pneuma. That's the breath of God that came down that filled them. And that is the New Testament administration. Now, everybody that believes on the Lord today is to be baptized and is to be filled with that precious gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the New Testament administration. That is how our works connect to our faith. And the Bible says that by works was faith made perfect. That's what it says. James chapter 2, it is there. Faith is not complete without those works. And as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So there's a lot of people out there with dead faith. As a matter of fact, and this is going to be strong, guys, and I'm not trying to offend, um, but this is, just, this is just what it says. James tells them in James 2, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So devils have faith without works. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says that there would come a time in the last times, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the, in the last times, the latter days, that many would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So in James chapter 2, devils have faith without works. And Paul tells Timothy, there are doctrines of devils. I firmly believe that to say that it is all works or it is no works are both doctrines of devils. It came from devils. Devils have faith. If you believe that there's a God, great. Even Satan has that. And to follow those, either one of those extremes is to miss out, and it is to depart from the faith. The Bible says they would give heed to seducing spirits. It's seducing to think that you don't need to put action why is there a book of Acts then? Why is there a church? Why is there preaching? The Bible says that we are persuading men. Paul said, I am persuaded. What, what need would there to be to be persuaded? What need would there be to have church if you're already predestinated? And so, to if you read 1 Timothy 4 where he begins to talk about 
the seducing spirits. One of the primary traits is that he said that these men would arise and they would seduce people. And um, he says that they, they would forbid to marry. They would forbid to marry. And, and there's no greater illustration of that than the Catholic doctrine that priests could not marry. <clears throat> they believed that the Pope who came along later on the idea of the Pope that he was so holy he would be like Jesus and he would not marry and all priests who would be like Jesus would not marry well ladies and gentlemen what a failure on the behalf of those doctrines those devilish doctrines those Romish doctrines forbidding to marry they, they claim Peter was the first Pope and and Peter had a mother-in-law Jesus was married <laughs> I remember old Charlie Mahaney if you ever heard Brother Mahaney preach, you you knew he was quite a character. He was talking to a priest one time, and the priest was talking about the office of the Pope, and they were in the Vatican. And Brother Mahaney was there with several apostolic preachers, and they're looking at this place, and they're looking at the artwork, and it is, you know, it's an amazing work of art, but it's also um, a seat of false doctrine and heresy as well. And they're looking at all this, and the, the, the priest is talking about it. And finally, Brother Mahaney couldn't take it anymore. He lifted his hands up, and he said, Hey, <clears throat> you're telling me that the Pope did not have a wife, and they never had a wife, and priests don't have wives. Um, is that right? And he said, Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a doctrine. That is the forbidding to marry doctrine. And Brother Mahaney said, Well, wasn't Peter the first Pope? He said, Yeah, that's right. Peter was the first Pope. And he said, well, Peter had a mother-in-law. <laughs> the priest just kind of blinked, and that didn't fit the narrative, you know. And he, as he stumbled around for what to say, Mahaney was known for his wit and his, he was a pretty sharp guy. And he looked at that priest and he said, I don't know about you, Bob, but if you got a mother-in-law and you didn't get a wife, you got ripped off, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't good. You don't want that. You don't want a mother-in-law without a wife. Um, and it just highlights the absurdity of it. Um, it is a Romish false doctrine, and the, the defining trait would be that they would forbid to marry. Well, that rise of Catholicism gave rise to Protestantism. If you take the time to look at Revelation, it talks about the woman that hid in the wilderness for 1260 days and using the day for a week dynamic that would be 1260 years that she fled into the wilderness from the face of the serpent. That's Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> or Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry. And that, from that, those 300 AD councils to the 1500s, the 1260 years line up rather nicely with that where the Catholic Church would have free reign to dominate and to pursue the church and to kill and if you ask Catholics who, who insist on, on, on their doctrine and the efficacy of their doctrine that how many millions died because of them and this is the great harlot of Revelation 17 she's drunk with the saints and drunk with the blood of the saints this is not to disparage um, sincere people that are a part of those faiths we don't disparage them at all we love them we appreciate them we pray for them but the Bible does teach to come out from her come out from among them, come out from all of the Romish heresies 
And that, that includes the Protestantism that still holds to the Trinitarianism that, that was spawned by the Greco-Roman construct, the Hellenized construct. Come out of it. Come out of that Catholic dynamic. Come out of that Protestant dynamic. There is a bride of Christ that is baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And she has faith and she has works. And they work together and that is Bible faith. That is believing on Jesus as the scripture hath said. So, Diego, that is the answer to the thief on the cross. It is putting the proper emphasis on the dynamic interplay between God and man. Catholicism says it's all works. Protestantism says there's no works. Calvinism is a further distortion of that that says there's nothing you can do. It was actually a, a response to extreme Catholicism. How can I undermine the power of the Pope? I'll save men before they're ever born. That way the Pope can't condemn them. It was a political move. It's not in the scripture. Individuals are not predestinated. The only thing predestinated in scripture is the body of Christ. That is immutable. It cannot be changed. But I can walk out of it. And I can go into it. I have that power. And so, anyway... This, this, this is where the apostolic doctrine really shines and, and, and we're making inroads into the Middle East. We're, just this morning I, I had a Bible study with a precious woman. <clears throat> After 30 minutes of, of apostolic doctrine, she looked up at me clear-eyed and she said, can I be baptized right now? If what you're saying is true, I want to be baptized right now. And I took her this morning and I baptized her in Jesus' name. I watched those precious saints in Beirut, Lebanon be baptized with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And for every false doctrine, false prophet out there that says the Holy Ghost is not real, you weren't there and you didn't feel it. And I'm here to testify along with every one of the apostles that it's real. I've got the Holy Ghost down in my soul just like the Bible said. And it is what the apostles preached. It is what we preached and it will dominate the world. The kingdom of God will reign supreme. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. I get a little worked up when I'm talking about Jesus. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name and God will fill you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the message of the apostles. It is our message. And it is how faith and works come together to create completed faith. So, until next time, God bless you. God keep you. God cause his face to shine upon you. God be gracious unto you and give you peace. We're glad you were with us today. We pray God's blessing upon your life. Until next time.